Welcome, everyone. Today, I have uh, Zach Stein with uh, me for some conversation. Uh, I have a number of questions uh, that I would love to throw by Zach uh, with his profuse and deep uh, knowledge and familiarity with um, developmental theory. I know that you um, you studied uh, and taught uh, at uh, Harvard, um, uh, teaching, I guess, uh, education. Uh, I did my doctoral work at the Harvard Graduate School of Education with Kurt Fisher, who was a neo-Piagetian, and then Howard Gardner, who was kind of famous. Uh, and I also taught there briefly, just a year, you know, um, for human development uh, yeah. specifically. Um, no, and and your work with Kurt Fisher, I'm really intrigued by, and uh, some of the the well, the developments to development uh, in terms of uh, you know theory, um, and um, I guess probably I just kind of want to jump into some things here, and maybe I can I can throw out a a kind of the situation as I'm finding it, and and uh, we can clarify some things here. So, um, so. Yeah, I've been I've been increasingly uh, exploring the developmental theory uh, terrain, reading folks like Robert Keegan and bought a bunch of Piaget. Um, of course, there's the meta theoreticians such as Wilbur, um, and uh, but then there's Commons and Kurt Fisher and um, you know Kohlberg, Gilligan, etc., Graves, um, and you know a lot of the conversations that happen around developmental theory stage theories uh, are very, uh, a lot of people are coming into this uh, through say integral theory. So there's sort of a, a secondhand element to this. I don't think as, I don't see a whole lot of direct engagement with some of the primary texts and, and whatnot. Um, and part of that, uh, that sort of more bird's eye view is that a lot of nuance is often lost. A lot of uh, kind of, lack of resolution gets introduced. And that can, uh, I think, kind of ultimately sort of deform our, our theoretization of, of, of these processes. And so one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is you have done work uh, that has really, you know, tried to emphasize more of the, uh, the nuance, the, the malleability, the um, uh, embracing some of these uh, meaningful critiques, and I think kind of drawing out some important uh, areas of specificity, uh, uh, dynamism, um, you know, and sort of removing some of that kind of prepackaged static stages and these kind of over, overly simplistic ways of thinking about these things. Um, so within that kind of thinking, one of the thoughts I wanted to question, you know, pose to you was, um, how should we think about stages? Um, there's a lot of conversation around stage theories and whether or not they're totally bunk or whether or not they're, they're totally true as, a, as a expressed by some particular you know, researcher or whatnot. Um, but when we talk about stages, what do you think is the best, uh, most effective and most honest way of sort of uh, engaging with that concept? Right, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, music to my ears, man, what you said about both that list of developmental theorists and the absence of people engaging with the primary texts. Um, many people who are like making their living uh, based on developmental models um, haven't actually read some of the primary texts. One of the reasons I don't really explicitly identify as like integral because <clears throat> of what I saw happening with spiral dynamics in particular, my early involvement with the community basically consisted of me 
saying your measures aren't accurate <laughs> and your models are a mixed bag. Um, and so let's stop trying to reorganize governments and organizations and communities. Um, let's slow down and talk about these kinds of questions first, which we're going to talk about here. So I think it's super important. So <clears throat> I work with this uh, meta psychology that I developed specifically to try to handle some of the complexity I was seeing in the field, trying to like, how does all this fit together? And so I think when people say stages, they often mean something very different. So I have three types of phenomena in my model, all of which kind of look like stages, but only one of which is actually quote unquote a stage. So there are in my model stages, stations, and phases um, across the domains of development, insolvent, and transcendence, right? And so like the move from pre-tragic to tragic to post-tragic is a move through stations of personality development, um, which can occur in someone who is 10 years old, six years old, having nothing to do with your developmental hierarchical complexity attainment, issuing you massive maturity and insight. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, right. Uh, similarly with phases of consciousness in my transcendent category, where you're looking at meditative attainment, ability at emotional control, uh, ability to basically um, emotionally self-regulate and transmit emotional states to others. There's a whole bunch of stuff. You move through phases, discrete shifts in consciousness um, through practice or embodiment practice. Um, <clears throat> again, distinct from what we would call developmental stages of hierarchical complexity, right? And so when people want to say there aren't stages, often they're seeing something that's true, which is like this 10-year-old kid who's way more mature than that scientist, right? <clears throat> um, or this meditative practitioner who can't speak in very complex philosophical language, but who has clearly attained some type of wisdom that is actually in their body that they can transmit to others, right? Why do you put him at a lower level <laughs> than someone who's a scientist and who can, you know, do all kinds of abstract linguistic stuff, right? Um, and so I think it's worth saying everyone's kind of right here. I'll play the Ken Wilber move. <clears throat> everyone's kind of right. The anomalous behavior that they're seeing, which disproves stages, doesn't disprove stages. It just shows that there's more to the life of the mind than cognitive developmental stages. <clears throat> and, you, and, and in some ways, it seems like Wilbur was already trying to get at that by making the stages and states distinction, right? I mean, it's it, now correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're talking about is stations and stages. Does that sort of map a little bit onto like a Wilberian stages and states or stations to be doing three things? There's the stages, stations, phases. And phases is like states, because when you move from state to state, gotcha. it's an abrupt phase shift. So gotcha. if you're looking at like um, uh, a, a Buddhist sutra where they lay out, you know, seven quote unquote levels or stages of meditative attainment, I wouldn't call those stages or levels. I would call them phases in the acquisition of the meditative capacity. And this is me being a, maybe a little bit weird meta-theoretical. I'm just trying to sort out the language. Because I think some of the problem here is that the stage theorists who say, no, stages are real, are correct. <laughs> and they're classifying a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the mind as just not part of their theory. And then other people are saying, no, uh, acquisition of maturity, acquisition of emotional regulation, 
right? Uh, that is what human development is about. <laughs> Mathematic, abstract language, that's not the main event. And mm -hmm. they're all correct. And I think a, a broader way of framing it can help. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what happens is you get people who are actually looking at stuff like stations in maturation, what I call ensoulment, but they're treating it like it's a cognitive developmental stage and thinking they can measure it like a cognitive developmental stage <laughs> and that it moves through an invariant logic like a developmental stage. And none of that's true about maturity yeah. development uh, in that domain. So, so I'm seeing it a much broader terrain. I'm kind of not answering your question. I'm saying- No, it's, it is an answer. I mean, it's, it's, it's greatly clarifying. I, I, it, it might seem, you know, it can- it can probably strike some folks, you know, if you're, as soon as there's this proliferation of terms, it's like, oh, pedantry and all this, but no, it's, it's, it's deeply necessary because it's a clarification and um, it can avoid these sorts of conflations of things that, that are going on. So I, I, I think it's really important. Well, and, you know, one of Kurt Fisher's most important papers, uh, he starts out the paper this way. Um, it's in the handbook of, of human development, uh, 2006, I think. And he's basically saying that, uh, you know, here's the argument. Stages exist. Stages don't exist. No, stages exist. <laughs> and he's like, come on. <laughs> he's like, it's both true and not true. So much of Kurt Fisher's model, uh, the Neo-Piagetian model, which incorporated dynamical systems theory and emotion, a bunch of stuff, was to try to accommodate precisely this argument which is that, oh man, you're both true. <laughs> Under some conditions, stages are clearly the case and other conditions, stages don't apply. And then the deeper issue, of course, <clears throat> not deeper, but adjacent uh, is do we apply stage thinking to social cultural development? Because, yes. and do we apply normative judgments to people at different stages? <clears throat> because that's a lot of what people are, I think, instinctively reacting to when they're rejecting stage theory is actually the misapplication yes. of stage theory to questions for which stage theory is not suitable. The most classic one being socio-cultural development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to take this in that direction soon enough, but at first I want to focus a little bit more on um, having made some of these clarifying distinctions uh, to then now focus on stages and get a, a, a better sense of what what those are. I mean, one of the things that I've been really intrigued by um, with your work and, and Fisher's work, and I guess both of your works together, is um, the way that 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 stages can be that should be thought of as as, as dynamic and um, and playing out in sort of real time. You know, that in 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 this book, uh, I think in the introduction, you show that chart where there's sort of um, someone's right. kind of complexity is sort of fluctuating in relation to. Uh, the event uh, or the, the the stimuli that are that are being presented, and um, so it 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 definitely kind of upends the notion of uh, stages as being this sort of you know static kind of hum, you know general uh, kind of uh, way of being. Um, and I want I want to ask you about this too because um, you know people will t use the language of someone's at a stage or their center of gravity is a stage or whatnot. Um, which these sort of more dynamic understandings would seem to problematize. So um, I guess putting all that into a question uh, or an invitation, I mean, share a little bit about how stages sh are best understood and whether or not, or the degree to which it is meaningful to talk about being at a stage or having a center of gravity, if at all. Interesting. Yeah. So, and this is how you can enter in because you can say, okay, I'm not talking about <laughs> personality development and, and ego development, basically. And I'm not talking about meditative attainment and emotional self-regulation. So assuming the person's motivated and can focus, 
and they're performing a task. And this is where Kurt gets very specific. He says, you know, what you think of as a stage is this dynamically constructed capacity, relation between organism and environment, and the system of or sequence of inescapable, inescapable prerequisites to accomplish the thing you're trying to do. So it's about the task demands of very specific performances and the sequence it takes to achieve those. Um, it's not about being at formal operations or being at concrete operations. It's about uh, the type of learning that's necessary to accomplish a task that's hierarchically complex. So for example, like tying the shoe, a classic example of a sensory motor skill, which has several sub stages, right? Not sweeping holistic statements about people's cognition, but like first you have to be able to have the sensory motor capacity to grasp the strings see them as distinct <clears throat> you need to if you can't do that then you can't take the next steps right full stop it's a sequence of acquisition of learning it's a necessary step and set of prerequisites so you learn to hold the strings <clears throat> you learn to fold them over right in the crossing pattern and then you learn to make the bows and then you turn the bows over and then you pull it together right um, <clears throat> each of those requires the prior um, and some of those actually require understanding the whole thing a little bit broader than just an immediate next action, right? So it becomes a sensory motor system that's acquired through a series of micro-developmental stages. Now, here's where Kurt gets super interesting. Kid does that. He does it 10 times, right? And then he's late getting out the door and he's crying and he hasn't eaten breakfast and he can't tie his shoe. Right? Kurt's like, of course, because the shoe tying skill capacity acquired through these se sequential micro-developmental stages is contextual, right? And actually touches domains of ensoulment and transcendence, right? So there's all related. So that, so he's saying that, yeah, you know, when it was shown by Piaget that kids acquired these skills in these sequences. And then in another experimental context, it was shown that actually younger kids could acquire those skills. <laughs> uh, and Piaget is like, well, of course, because you set up the context differently. So Kurt's point is that there's no such thing as being at a stage. <clears throat> performances require certain capacities, certain degrees of skill. So you can think about a performance, like tying the shoe, having a requisite degree of hierarchical complexity. Um, well, can I ask a question then? So one, so this is a very helpful way of being able to study this and sort of creating an experiment that can really, you know, kind of analyze what's going on by kind of reducing as many variables as possible. There's going to be one task and we'll kind of map it that way. Um, but in the sense that, you know, when I'm going throughout my day, I'm doing multiple tasks simultaneously, right? And so uh, I guess my first question is sort of like, is there a degree to which this presentation of the idea of stages as being task specific is actually sort of an artifact of the, of the way that it's being sort of modeled or studied, right? Because in real life, I'm doing all these things at once. And so then how could I think about, how, you know, my higher, do I, do I parse out each individual task I'm doing and think about my hierarchical complexity in relation to those individual tasks, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of question one. Question two is, um, so let's say the kid can tie their shoes in certain contexts and not in others based on, on situations and, uh, you know, different variables in those, in those different contexts. Um, that kid won't be able to do uh, intense algebra or, you know, like calculus, uh, no matter what the, if they're 
really just you know they're they've got a bowl of popcorn and things are just going golden and i don't know why popcorn would be you know so but I, I like popcorn i guess um but you know optimal conditions right there are certain limitations on what will be possible to for that kid uh, meaning there does also then still seem to be a set of a, of a kind of fixed ranges, if not a particular, you know, stages that they're at. Right. So I'm just trying to get a sense of how we can still think kind of broadly in stable structures by thinking about these things and not always having to break them down into their utmost sort of granular task oriented, uh, you know, studies. Totally, yeah. <clears throat> so good, good set of questions there. So, so basically, I, I had that conversation about micro developmental stages, um, which are on short time durations um, and happen in contexts. Uh, and then there are macro developmental uh, stage changes, which is the same logic kind of fractally applied at a higher level, which it means it's a necessary stack of prerequisite skills each built upon its predecessor, unable to skip its predecessor, right? So it's a long way from tying your shoes to algebra. You can't jump over all of the spatial awareness capacity, all of the eventual early number system capacity, a whole bunch of other social skills required to be in a place where you're talking about abstract symbols. So all of these skills, you are a very complex set of skills, a big, massive cluster of embodied skills and dispositions from having those skills and the skills are unequally distributed across all these different domains so like right now you and i are doing something very highly skilled <clears throat> i don't know you but if we were looking at a car engine and you and i were trying to talk about the car engine right mm -hmm. it would be like hmm <laughs> look at that thing looks hot and overheated mm. you know and we'd be like kids talking about a car engine because we don't have the language and the practice mm -hmm. so the, it's exactly the fact that throughout your day, you're at multiple levels. Like you're tie, you tie your shoe, right? You get up, you're groggy and put your shoes on. You are at that level. <laughs> uh, then you wake up and then you're reading and then you're talking and then you're doing some constructive work and now you're at a much higher level. And then you get in a fight with your spouse and you get emotional and you regress down to another level. So you, it's precisely that dynamic developmental flow between all these different skill domains, which are at different levels. That's what Kurt was focusing on. He's like... It's not about being at a cognitive level. It's about these ability to move fluidly up and down these skill sets and move across different skill domains. So you get an ecosystem of skills as opposed to a central processor that gets, gets more capacity, right? So the ecosystem of skills has these balances. Mm. <clears throat> skills cooperate and skills parasites on other skills like exchanges between skill sets that enrich some third skill set, right? Uh, very dynamic, all over the place. You are not at one level. Your specific skill is at a level, but it's participating in an ecosystem of skills. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the the bad developmental view is you got a, a like a hardware central processor, it runs this fast. And then you get like a boom, an upgrade. And now you've got a central processor that runs that fast. Um, and that's just quite simple. A couple questions. And one is... Um is this a linear progress or are there emergent like uh, jumps or leaps that occur in this sense? Because uh, if you think about it, just skill building on skill, it would seem to be linear, but it, at the same time, there's a lot about development that seems sort of emergent. Um, yeah. And then 
I, I'd still love to hone in more on this question of like, so let's say I, I there's a, a range of skills that I've I've kind of worked up to. Um, and there, and I have a friend who has a range of skills that they've worked up to. Now we both have to get out of bed and tie our shoes and we both might, you know, not be able to do that if we're distraught even, uh, you know, so like there's a way that we could kind of, you know, collapse that stack way down uh, through kind of a regressive, just, oop, nope, that's, that's where I'm at right now. But still in sort of that macro level view, it would seem that like maybe in the aggregate or on average or something, I'm operating I don't know that that doesn't quite work, but you, there's something about a way in which in comparing our two skill sets, you know, if, if someone is able to do that algebra, or that calculus, and I can't, cause I haven't acquired those skills yet. It seems like a meaningful distinction to make, even if it's um, if it's, if it's too crude to just say, Oh, well, they're at different levels. Uh, does yes. that make sense? Yeah. So I'll get to both of those questions. And <clears throat> so the, the one about spurts and jumps in development, uh, non-linear phenomenon, also demonstrated very clearly by, by Kurt's work. Uh, and the example of the shoe tying, you know, serves us here. At first, you have to remember every sub-skill within the macro skill of you tie the shoe, which be eventually you chunk that. It becomes a sensory motor system and you just execute shoe tying schema without even thinking, right? And so those places where the many become one and re-chunked, and now you're tying your shoes, thinking about putting your hat on, putting your gloves on, tying the other shoe, and it's all probably getting ready to go, which is like kind of abstract, you know? So those forms of chunking, those are these really discrete, what are sometimes called jumps or stage transitions, which can occur very acutely. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't Ah, I got it. <laughs> you know, and the amount of time you weren't getting it compared to the duration when it happened is a jump. So that happens repeatedly, again, fractally. So it happens at the level of the micro developmental changes in the minutes and hours. It also happens at the level of macro developmental changes where like over a period of a month, some three year pattern of thinking kind of dissolves and you reorganize at a higher level uh, across multiple skill domains. And this is to your second point, uh, which is that <clears throat> there are across many domains, really legitimate capacity asymmetries between people. Right. And this is a, I think, very important to recognize. Most of human culture runs on the recognition of these asymmetry capacities. And, but it's, in, and that's a fancy way of saying, like, with the, if we brought in an auto mechanic when we were trying to talk about that car, we would bring him in precisely because we knew that when talking about cars, this dude knows more than us. And so we are learning from him. And so that would be something really reliable. Like even on his worst day, he would know more than me about that car on my best day. <laughs> so that's a robust, yeah. but still domain specific. Yeah. Now there are skill sets that can be acquired very high in a particular domain, which are transferable to other domains very easily. So some people therefore, and I believe philosophers are among these people have acquired really useful in going by going really deep in one skill set they've enhanced their capacity to operate very highly on other skills um and so that can happen intentionally or by accident so there is sometimes the appearance of like whoa that dude's just like way smarter <laughs> but it's much more complex than just he has a more powerful central processor it has to do with the complexity and robustness of his ecosystem of skills mm. 
but even that dude needs to be able to get the fuck over himself and get a mechanic in there if he doesn't know how to fix the car so right. there's always that lurking sense of like we're misdiagnosing someone if we just yeah point to their stage attainment as being the the stage they attain under most optimal conditions in the domain they're most familiar with yeah right. so here's a thought experiment then let's say um uh, and I don't know how, but you totally pegged me on not having any idea how an engine works. Um, but, uh, but yes, so a thought experiment is this. Um, there's uh, someone who has been working with cars, you know, their whole life. So they've got that skill background um, and experience. Um, and then there's another person who's just like a brilliant, I don't know, quantum mechanic a, a, a quantum mechanic, right? So you got the car mechanic and the quantum mechanic. Um, so the thought experiment is, okay, um, let's say you could do this sort of like matrix style, plug in the quantum mechanic to like a computer and they just sort of, and th there's a lot of problems with the thought experiment, but just bear with me for a second. So he just downloads the whole schema of how an engine works, okay? And so now he knows how all the parts go together. Um, is and now when presented with a, a, a car, is there a meaningful difference between the person who whose skills with a with a car engine are based on experience versus someone who uh, through as you're saying sort of developing a deep skill set in in like highly theoretical areas uh, would actually be able to outperform the car mechanic because they're applying a different sort of um, you know, uh, I don't know, wiring or, or something. Um, I don't know if the thought experiment makes sense or if I can clarify it at all, but uh, the way that I, I, I often kind of think of like the, the Piagetian, you know, the concrete and the formal is like, these are somehow like, there's, a, there's some kind of awareness that's built into these uh, more complex um, uh, operational strategies that are just that that if you don't have them you're sort of just blind to them you're just you just don't see them um and so i'm trying to kind of you know all things being equal as it were is there some mechanic um or i don't use that word is there some uh is there some structural way that there that there's a reality behind that sort of idea or is it is it all experience and skills based i don't know if if that makes sense so if there's a few things in there i think i know what you're getting at so basically like there this i kind of already said it like there there are some people who have minds <laughs> with skill sets that are massively transferable so like mathematics is, is an example of this if you're good at certain fields of mathematics you can go into many domains and very quickly like get up to speed just because you're good at mathematics right um and so those people would be have much more quote-unquote powerful minds just by virtue of having acquired that specific skill um uh, and so there is something about the kind of halo effect that the acquisition of certain capacities in certain domains have that make us think that there's this kind of like at a certain point a switch goes on. And now you've always got this kind of higher level thing beaming in your mind that allows you to illuminate everything below you. Um, and I think that's, that's not exactly accurate, um, in part because it's always contextual, um, but also because it is the case that... Uh, um, the embodiment of skill development can't be gone over. So, and this gets to, I think, a subtle point you were making with the auto mechanic and the, and the quantum mechanic, which is that even if the quantum mechanic was so brilliant, you could memorize exactly how the car engine functioned, 
And so he could look and he could diagnose the problem. Being able to fix the car is actually different because you have to work with the car with your hands. You have to figure out how hard do I actually pull this thing to make it come off or not, right? So there's an embodied skill the mechanic has, which is actually a kinesthetic skill, which is very complex and subtle, which you would never get just from an abstract matrix download of the car schematics, right? Um, and this is true in many scientific fields where people underestimate the embodied lab work uh, and the kind of gestural exchanges of psychologists and other things, which always root skill <clears throat> in body and uh, acquisition of skill over a long time. Um, so I think that's, that's worth noting, but I think it's one of the misconceptions and it, it's in part an artifact of the IQ test and other measurement artifacts that we want to identify <clears throat> some kind of unchanging substance in the person um, when in fact the person's radically contextually variable. Well, that, and that gets to another question that comes up for me is, um, is there any sense that, um, that, uh, so a lot of what you're saying is that, yes, it's highly contextual. It's highly, um, based in environment and, uh, in the kind of hackneyed and cliched and ridiculously reductive sort of nature nurture sort of thing. It would be more sort of the nurture. Um, but then the question is sort of there, is there, is there a, a, a nature uh, basis for uh, the, the field or the range of, of state or stage complexity that a person can attain? Um, has that been studied? Um, I, I mean, for IQ there, which I know you think and have articulated as a very kind of problem, problematic metric, um, but there's a lot of so, you know, there, there are claims that there's a lot of uh, good empirical evidence that IQ is tied to um, like a, a genetic heritability element there uh, to the order of, I forget exactly what. Um, yeah, and I'm curious if there's, if there's uh, similar kind of correlations uh, when it comes to stage complexity. Yeah, so again, it's, it's a deep issue and it's, it's, it's interesting the way <clears throat> what developmentalists have been trying to say for a while is different from what the IQ guys have been trying to say. Now, I'm, I'm not the gospel of developmental psychology. I'm, this is actually a heterodox view, which is pioneered by Kurt. Other people like uh, Pasquale Leone, who had this theory of M-power, which is very much like an IQ-like notion, very much you're describing, like M-power just grows. <laughs> and people with more M-power just have more M-power. Um, which is like mental power. It's, it was a combination of like ability to hold attention and to hold complexity at the same time. So there's just like a general trait of holding attention on complexity and that just growing. <laughs> uh, and that's being measurable and fairly consistent across context, right? Um, so I'm, I think that's not a bad, it's not a bad model. I'm as an educator, more interested in the microdevelopmental stage dynamical context variability and then the interface with, you know, uh, the other domains that I've laid out of transcendence and, and ensoulment. Um, so in that sense, uh, I'm kind of problematizing some of the key constructs. Now that said, none of what I've said has ruled out the fact that some people by virtue of the micro macro developmental stuff end up being like really, really, really highly skilled people. <laughs> and then other people by virtue of those same processes end up being less skilled, right? Again, there'll be some place where that guy knows something the other guy doesn't, but in general, across the vast majority of domains, that dude is just quote unquote smarter, 
right? So though I've not denied that. I've just said that the best way to understand that is not that he's got something that he just inherited that made him smarter, but that actually it's a very complex process of what's been given and what has been experienced and metabolized. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'd love to then move into this. You brought this up earlier and I wanted to touch on this too, or not just hopefully more than touch on it, but really kind of do go in a little, uh, do some, do some deep dives into this issue. Uh, the, the connection between, um, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but the, the socio, the sociocultural, uh, component of this, right. So, um, the, in the kind of Wilberian model that he develops, it's sort of like, uh, kind of basically mapping the Piagetian stages onto sort of, uh, cultural evolutionary and intellectual history as it were. Um, and, uh, so there'd be this sort of basic idea, right? That like, well, primary stage thinking sort of develops, you know, 50,000 years ago. And then, you know, th- this sort of a thing. So uh, speak to that, hopefully uh, elucidate, clarify, um, and uh, help me through some of that. Yeah, totally. Um, so this is very, very important issue. Um, uh, it's classically framed as the ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny issue, which is to say, do the developmental processes that characterize the single human from embryo to adult also characterize the humanity itself from its, you know, quote unquote infancy and the dawns of prehistory to, you know, now. Um, And so for a very long time, the answer was just simply totally yes. (laughs) Like, uh, and by the way, not just in our culture, like in, in many cultures, there was an intuitive sense that, at least civilizations, if not humanity, went through some kind of arc, like a life cycle. So there's a deep intuitive idea there. Then when Darwin came and others, and you get the evolutionary view, it got more specific. And then it got so specific that you started getting these very detailed stages of sociocultural development, right? And who was doing that sort of work? Like who, who was putting that stuff out? Was there any particular folks that were sort of like... Uh, I don't know, equated with or representative of this school of thought? I mean, it's interesting, right? Because David Graeber's new book, The Dawn of Everything, covers this conversation specifically. Um, And his argument is essentially that the idea of justifying our current civilization as being at the end point of some inevitable stage-like sequence of sociocultural development was actually articulated first in response to the philosophers from the American continent, which is to say the indigenous American philosophers from the first people's nations, right? Um, uh, it's a very interesting argument, which is to say that um, uh, we had to begin to justify our way of life in response to a very different way of life. And one way to do that was just to simply call it primitive. Um, and so there's this very strong counter in anthropology to the argument. Um, But that said, uh, there are ways of analyzing, again, probably best understood as microdevelopmental, things that occur in in societies that are clearly developmental phenomenon and that have stage-like sequencing to them. Again, the problem here is to over-essentialize and to use broad sweeps and to have those broad sweeps have normative connotations. But there's nothing wrong with talking about a particular culture in a particular place evolving and going through stage-like transformations. Like when I think of like the Bengal Renaissance, right? Which eventually gave us Gandhi and Aurobindo, 
but began with these poets and philosophers from the Hindu tradition, like Vivekananda, who encountered the British imperialism, right? And you can look at the, what happened in that culture. And the, the whole Indian culture goes from one way of thinking about the world to like a very different way of thinking about the world. Uh, and so I think the, the concern has been, like I said, the oversimplification and the, the normative arguments about it. Um, Habermas's view where he applies Kohlberg's model to look at actual constitutions is one of the best I've seen um, because what he's doing there is not looking at uh, the zeitgeist or artistic works. He's looking at actual written legal documents and using Kohlbergian uh, psychometric techniques basically to look at the level of moral development in the constitutions themselves and showing that like moving from medieval Europe into these our enlightenment constitutions, this is better. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and like is therefore, can you say that it is better than what the native Americans had going on before we showed up? Can't say that just by virtue of it being a quote unquote prior culture. And this is yeah. what Graver's getting into. Right. And uh, yeah. Well, what, what, so complexity often does a lot of heavy lifting in these conversations as sort of a normative stand in or something. It's sort of like, um, you know, uh, which almost implicitly suggests a normativity, um, but it doesn't quite go so far as to, to say that one thing is better or, or, or worse. It's just this is more complex than, than this. Um, do you, how do I put this? I mean, do you, do you, is there is there something to the argument that complexification leads to um, uh, a, a sort of increased perspective taking, more inclusivity, um, the kind of broad Wilberian kind of thought about this, right? That like as things develop and progress, like you, people get less and less egocentric and more world centric and all that. I mean, does that basic thrust hold up, do you think? Or, or do you think it falls apart when you start kind of really digging into the details? I mean, what's interesting is that uh, I'm reading the reading Graber's book, right? And comparing it to, let's say, Up From Eden, which is Ken's classic take on this. Uh, Ken actually cites some of the same literature where he's trying to justify taking these humans, our early, early ancestors, like 90,000 years BC, who are burying people and making art uh, and then making musical instruments, taking these people seriously as fully human, meaning they, so for Ken, they had access to all of the states <laughs> and potentially all of the levels, right? Um, and so that's just worth noting that even though there was a sense that it's pure growth to goodness in Ken's model, uh, he had this way of understanding the quote unquote primitive that actually made them not primitive at all. And actually tried to say, no, the religious insights <laughs> from ancient cultures are deeper than our quantum physics. <laughs> like this is what Ken's trying to say. So I think it's very simplistic to think that the uh, evolution of humanity is any less fraught with moral and normative complexity than the evolution of an individual, right? So let's do that. Let's, let's pretend that it works a little bit, right? And do the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny bit and say, basically, if you understand humans, very, a single me, Zach, simply, stupidly, like I just grow up and everything gets better and better and better. And as I get more complex, I understand more and more. And mm -mm. we all know that as you get more complex and you grow up, life gets harder. 
life gets more confusing, tragedies occur that inevitably occur, right? So I think some of the problem here is that uh, we are narcissistically perceiving our own development and wishfully thinking about what it means for individuals to develop, getting all of the shit into the into our shadow and then looking at culture and saying, well, obviously it must be getting better and better and better. That's how development works. That's how evolution works. Mm, no, evolution works not by getting better and better and better. No. <laughs> getting more complex and actually deeper and deeper and deeper. And in some domains, more and more painful. Yeah. Uh, more tragedy can be created. Uh, the more you can perceive in terms of perspectives, the more you can be compassionate for people who are suffering, the more your heart hurts for the entire world. Uh, so it's not clear to me that the models are wrong just because we are approaching civilizational collapse, right? It could be that <laughs> uh, this is where this developmental trajectory went for our humanity. It's also mm. worth noting that in, in Wilbur's work early in the 80s, he had the fulcrum model of developmental pathology. And so if you apply that in terms of civilizations, you can also see, wait, we can have evolving civilizations that actually go wrong. <laughs> that at some point there's a deep pathology. And just like in an individual, that pathology has ramifications downstream as the whole thing complexifies. And so you get these embedded traumas that unfold as development continues to complexify. So that's another way of saying, if we do want to do ontogeny, rec recapitulates phylogeny, let's have some sense about how we even understand the individual human and then apply those lessons and say, oh, we could have a pathological <laughs> development on our hands here. You could, yeah, you could have a, a Nazi doctor writ large, as it were, which, Correct. you know, in some ways, maybe yeah. that's exactly what we're seeing um, with, when you look at the news today. Um, uh, I mean, what do you, what do you think, um, in the attempt to try to avoid the oversimplifications, uh, I mean, heuristics are so hard, right? They're, they, they, they are stereotypes, but they're useful ones. They, they, they arguably do work for us. They help, but at the expense of a lot of nuance and, and, and complexity. Um, and so there's always that trade-off between, okay, it's helpful to use this particular heuristic because it can, it can help us speak in broad terms about some very big trends and some important patterns that we can, uh, you know, see uh, unfolding in the world. Um, but of course, again, then we reify those patterns and, and we do all the stuff that we're trying to clarify and, and, and avoid in, in these sorts of conversations. So um, I guess my question is, is there, a, is there a particular model or is there a particular set of heuristics that you find particularly helpful in trying to uh, apply these these developmental models to sociocultural histories? Or do you just feel like it's better we don't go there at all? Um, is there, is there something real about thinking about, say, you know, the move from, uh, traditional society to modern society to postmodern society, maybe metamodern society, is that a real thing or, or, uh, are we, are we losing so much complexity and nuance and reality in the process of making those heuristics that we've actually really just diluted ourselves? I mean, I, there's a lot in there. So a few things I'll say. One is that the, just like in specific contexts in individual human development, you can lay out using specific methods and show that there's a microdevelopmental sequence. Depending how you hold the terms pre-modern, modern, post-modern, post metamodern, in some parts of the world, under some definitions and methods, something like that unfolded, right? Now, saying that's the story of the whole world... <laughs> 
is is pretty ridiculous but saying that's the story of like some component of the world and say like the nordic countries and some of europe and a little bit of america or something like okay now i can follow you if you well define what you're talking about and then you're not just in sweeping broad generalizations talking like spiral dynamics about individuals you're actually looking at micro developmental patterns and showing how this thing works in terms of an inescapable sequence of prerequisites right so that so it's not impossible to do that in sociology history is more interesting i like to think of uh the creation of all of these historians who built some basically like historical epochs right it's a it's like a branch of historiography where you think about how do we classify historical epochs for me that's like almost like a question of like in, in the insolvent domain if we want to do that right and saying that like in one sense, there's many ways to look at history. And there are actually many valid ways to think about different historical epochs from different perspectives. So I think that's useful. The deeper thing here is that even when talking about individuals, I almost never talk about where someone's at at a particular stage or use stage language. I talk about dynamics of teacherly authority. I talk about capacity asymmetries that are inescapable. And I talk about learning processes and the dynamics of learning and virtuous cycles of learning and things of that nature. Because these are processes that apply no matter what developmental level you're at, that are important to understand across the whole scope of human development, uh, and that don't over fetishize particular names for particular levels, but see the levels as actually emergent phenomenon from deeper processual things. And the deeper processual things are learning which happens micro and macro and the teacher student teacherly authority asymmetric capacity inevitabilities which are the kind of stew that we cook ourselves in this is not a good metaphor but it's it's the it's the stew we metabolize to to grow uh, as as learners and so i think similarly in socio-cultural development learning processes this is one of the greatest habermasian insights the way to gauge a society uh is not by what it says it does with its moral codes and stuff. It's by its demonstrated capacity for ongoing learning. And upgrades in a society's capacity to learn are what we're looking for. We're not looking for going in a certain moral direction. We're looking for growing our ability to learn together as a society. So like focusing not on social development in terms of stages and levels, but focusing on social learning, group learning, how do societies improve their capacity to learn? So for example, have we become better at learning in the current condition of the pandemic? Like, are we better learning as a society or are we worse learning, right? So that's the, have we regressed in our ability to all we're learning together? We're like getting smarter at being smarter or have we gone down, right? Like, so that's one. And then the asymmetries of capacity are important. So different societies have different capacities. And so we can't need, be naive about that. And those capacities are across different dimensions of reality. So America has a lot of capacity for kinetic warfare, for example, right? Um, some indigenous peoples have zero capacity for kinetic warfare, but have tremendous capacity for other things, <laughs> right? So that notion that there are even in societies and cultures, and this is like the, the hidden truth in what was being seen about the difference between the Native Americans and and uh, the Europeans was that there was an asymmetry of capacity that you cannot deny, like ballistics is science. <laughs> uh, and it's not to say the Native Americans didn't have intuitive ballistics with their bows and arrows, but they weren't doing ballistical mathematics like Leibniz, for example, right? So these differences in capacity are real. 
Um, and if the, those who have certain types of asymmetries and capacity then create contexts in which only those asymmetries and capacity are awarded, right? Then you get this self-insulating pathology of sociocultural development where we hypertrophy just particular forms of capacity like for kinetic warfare <laughs> or capital accumulation. And we don't value those other capacities like for wisdom and ethics and uh, community and uh, even just like um, health. So, so yeah, so I think that's one way to think about it. It ends up yeah. being a bit more complex, but in terms of like things that can just land, like the stages land, I think learning and that is deep. Like we shouldn't focus on the stages people go through when they learn. We should focus on how does learning actually work? Yeah. <laughs> you know, not where are you, but right. how, how do we get you moving up and down? Well, it's, you know, I, one of the things that just my, my take on some of this is that there's a lot of critique of application that sort of pat and how do I put this um, uh, sort of like, so for example, I mean like developmental stage theories in general uh, by some are just sort of denigrated and dismissed because of how they have been misapplied um, rather than what are the, what's the empirical basis? What's the, how, how can we find some nuance and you know, all that. Right. And um, so at the same time though, you know, these, these, these two uh, ideas seem to be really inextricably linked, right? There's a, maybe a theory that can have a lot of uh, evidentiary support and a lot of empirical evidence uh, that backs it and that, that sort of grounds it. Um, but then there's also the applications um, and the deployments of those theories. And I guess um, like this kind of butts up against this in particular, because it's sort of like, yes, it would be great to focus on the learning, but we also would presumably need to know what learning is and what, what, what we are learning through or how we are learning or what, what the, what that actually looks like. Um, and that doesn't mean we need to focus on that. Right. But if we don't have a sense of how that process looks um, or a model that can in some ways sort of map that the, the progression through that territory, then we can't arguably do the, the learning as effectively, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and so that's just sort of a general observation about so many of these things, because I, I, one, I'm not saying that the science is said, I think that there's a lot to be developed and learned more about all of these things. Uh, but at the same time, the sort of reaction that I also witness is sort of like, oh, well, this has been misapplied and misused, therefore it must be false, or therefore we're just going to say that it shouldn't be used because look what it's done. It's sort of a different argument and sort of a ought from is argument and that sort of a thing. Um, I guess one, I don't know if you have any reflections on that. Well, yeah. Do you have any reflections on that? <laughs> and it, it's complicated because I mean, I've studied the history of eugenics, you know, um, and understand the, the misuse of both the social development models and individual development models. Incidentally, IQ has, of course, done some of the worst damage uh, as far as being the sharp end of the stick with the early eugenics movement. Um, so, I mean, much of that is well taken. I think the complexity here is that, you know, like we don't dismiss physics and believe physics isn't real because it was used to create the atomic bomb, right? Um, you may hate the atomic bomb, uh, and think it was a very poor use of science. But that doesn't mean that the realities that went into creating it, the discovery of, you know, how to, all that, like, doesn't mean it's not right. real. So I right. think it's something we have to be very careful with there. Same with computer technologies, like what we're able to do here through computer technology 
is completely predicated upon the military industrial complex. <laughs> At the same time, it was creating the atomic bomb digital mm-hmm. emerged um, complex system sciences yeah. that allowed for that. So the idea that because a particular science has been misused, therefore the science isn't true, is just simply foolish. The idea that uh, because a science has been misused, we need to be very careful <laughs> with how we use it is common sense. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really intrigued by is sort of um, applying developmental uh, frameworks. How do I put this? Uh, Sort of reinserting how we communicate developmental frameworks back into what we know about learning and developmental frameworks. Um, So like the the amount of nuance and complexity, arguably, that would be uh, required to appropriately sort of wield (laughs) developmental models um, might be I did that work. What's that? I did that work. There's oh, did essay, you? Uh, there's an essay I wrote. It's called "Now You Get It, Now You Don't: Developmental Differences in the Understanding of Integral Theory." Basically, and mm-hmm. I we did basic research in the John F. Kennedy University Master's Degree that focused on integral theory and stages of development were a huge part of it, and so I actually tracked different levels in the understanding of levels. <laughs> uh, and there's huge differences there. And that's yeah. why the whole, is it a stage? Is it not a stage? That's just a very simplistic framing. Like, oh, do, you so apply, do you apply simple levels to society development? <clears throat> well, you do if you're at abstract mappings when you reason about this stuff, <laughs> right? So there's a, there, you're right to see that some of the problem here has been in, in uh, a lack of learning and development on the part of those discussing learning and development. Um, now that's not to dismiss all the arguments. Like I said, yeah. uh, I've studied the history of eugenics, like, and I've studied the misuse of psychology across the board. Um, like it's, it's egregious. And I would say in the field of psychology, mm. I would argue that developmental psychology is actually doing all right, mm. considering what other psychologists have been involved with. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that developmental psychology, as we know it now, I'm not talking about the history. Mm. I'm not talking about like, uh, the eugenics movement in the 20s before any developmental psychology was happening. I'm talking about uh, the developmental psychology that's happening now. Yeah. It has happened since the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah. The neo piagetian consensus, et cetera. Um, you know, compared again, like to the, the use of behaviorism uh, and other things in coerced confession and I'm not mm. going to get into details and bring. Yeah brainwashing research and so i'm just saying it's like uh, my sense is that and this happens occasionally in fields where there's uh apple carts being turned over um uh, and it happens repeatedly and the question of why one goes in the marketplace to turn the apple carts over uh becomes a question uh piaget you know it's old news to critique piaget like piaget was the whipping boy for a decade um and uh, was completely mischaracterized for a decade. Um, so I'm also just, it's like a boring conversation to me in a lot of ways, the flippant dismissal of the whole field of developmental psychology. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it, it actually doesn't help us move towards finding forms of psychology, uh, which would be humanely applied. Yeah, It's a very difficult conversation, which apply, requires something like this meta-psychology that we're yeah. development's only a part of it. Um, anything that just focuses on development, missing three huge components, according to my model, <laughs> excuse me, two huge components, according to my model. So, so yeah, I think we're ships passing in the night and yeah. honestly, like, you know, 
where do you want to have these discussions as well? Most of what I'm seeing is on social media. And so it's like, it's not a place to actually have a discussion. Yeah. Just a, a couple of quick things. One, just also quick pass clarification. Do you think that um, Piaget's work uh, more or less still stands, still useful, still? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Because I'm unequivocally, yeah. I mean, Piaget was one of the most profound thinkers of the 20th century. Like the vast majority of Piaget's work has not been translated mm-hmm. and was in the domains of epistemology right. uh, and developmental epistemology and logic and innovations in different forms of logic. And I mean, the, the dude was prolific. And so the, P- the Jean Piaget Society, which I was a member of for quite a while, did a study where they looked at American and Canadian textbooks, presentations of Piaget, and they were all completely false. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most people dismiss a straw man of Piaget, have actually never read Piaget and couldn't read some of the most profound Piaget, mm. um, which is still in French and slowly being translated. Mm. So I've been in touch with scholars and deeply, deeply enmeshed in Piagetian scholarship, especially when I was in graduate school. Uh, and so I became stunned by the adequacy and complexity of Piaget's mm. thinking and realize how distracted people were by very specific stages that he laid out in one work, which he never, which he always talked about these things. Like he was a biologist, like he was going into this field and he was going to find specimens, try to understand what happened, but he's not getting his hat. He's not getting hung up or hanging his hat on any particular taxonomy. So he was very fluidly moving across many different domains uh, and then did some, uh, some experimental work, especially in domains of causality and number, uh, which is, which is robust. Now you have known everything that developed in cognitive science. No, but he did foresee the application of complexity science, um, chaos theory, um, self-organizing systems, um, and was working towards a form of profound interdisciplinary collaboration, uh, that was decades, I think ahead of his time, kind of a high watermark in many ways for psychology. So do you, would you say, I mean, obviously it varies depending on which research you're talking about, but so much of the research that is sort of traced back to Piaget, uh, Kohlberg, and then Fowler through Kohlberg, and so many other people kind of working with those basic uh, um, models. I mean, there's sort of the sense of, oh, well, if Piaget is no good, then none of this other stuff's any good. Uh, would you say that, I mean, this is all st- the opposite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I would say, you know, read Kohlberg before you read, I mean, excuse me, read Piaget before you read mm. Kohlberg or Fowler or, or any of those, mm-hmm. uh, it's more primary. Piaget was, was not a psychologist. Piaget was an epistemologist. P- Piaget, yeah. Piaget was trying to answer questions that were trying to be answered by the greatest philosophers on any continent, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, questions about how the mind and nature are related questions about how, necessary knowledge like mathematics can emerge out of completely contingent causal processes of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are questions that transcend psychology. And so he gets classified just as a child psychologist who just observed his own babies in a crib and then made up a whole theory about it. And, and it's, it's insulting yeah. and lazy. Yeah. yeah. Now, some of the Neo-Piagetians, uh, as I said, there was an emergent Neo-Piagetian consensus um, in the eighties where Michael Commons and Kurt Fisher and, eventually Theo Dawson and the work that I did was kind of in this Neo-Piagetian consensus. 
Then you have the moral developmental tradition that emerged from Piaget, which is Kohlberg and Elliot Turiel eventually at Berkeley and, and rest and the, the finding issues test and other things. Um, and much of that is good, but uh, with the exception of, I believe, Fisher at basically a lower level of complexity than Piaget. And some places in Kohlberg where it's just killer. Kohlberg, Kohlberg is amazing, but Piaget was at a, in a whole other... Yeah. other uh, All right, so... So rapid fire here, because I know we're, we don't have too much time. So a couple questions. One, do you think that it's fair to speak in the way that uh, Wilbur does about a, a sort of general uh, altitude developmental field? Is there is, is that basic idea of the sort of abstraction from all these distinct developmental models into saying, hey, they're all basically going through a similar progression here, and we can refer to sort of the abstracted developmental altitude uh, that that the, all of these different lines are, are going through. Is there it, it, how much of that do you feel like holds up? So I would say in my meta psychology, if you're just looking at development, that's not a bad meta theoretical construct. Mm-hmm. If you try to apply that logic to phenomena that exist in the domains of ensoulment or transcendence, mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot of problems. There's not one universal altitude for the mm-hmm. whole person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that in that there's anything meaningful? to be gained by trying to situate socio-cultural development in that altitude space? Is that a meaningful endeavor of thinking about it in that way? Um, not phrased that way. <laughs> like there's a way that you can look at, you can, there's a way that, for example, you can use the model of hierarchical complexity uh, to look at very specific cultural artifacts and take samples of those cultural artifacts. Like there's a way to look, to use the complexity lens to look at, I would think, micro-developmental phases in civilizations, right? I think you could do something like that. But to say in general that like, you know, long, long, long ago on the African continent, like 10,000 years before Christ, um, that those civilizations were by definition necessarily. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just think that's, we've yeah, been here sure. for so long and we've had the, basically the same brains for so long Right. Uh, that in different domains, not in the socio-technical economic domains that we've built up all this complexity, right? Mm-hmm. So forget that in that sense. Yes. Like we have more sheer complexity, <laughs> but in other domains, I'm take the, you know, medieval Tibet, like the interiority and the complexity of the experience of interiority shared by an entire culture mm. probably are outstrips our accomplishments in science and technology mm. Mm. going out mm-hmm. on a limb saying that, but yeah. it's like, and that you could imagine those types of cultural phenomena where culture society identifies a particular value and optimizes for that value at an incredible rate of motivation and capacity. And so this yeah. is basically Graver's argument about the indigenous peoples of the North American continent. Mm-hmm. They chose to live this way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were optimizing for values very, very different from the values the Europeans were optimizing for and were actually doing a great job. And do you and, find do you find Graber's book generally convincing on the whole or? I do actually, yeah. I've, I've been, I've read everything that Graber's written and mm-hmm. found him to be meticulous. I mean, controversial and sometimes a little sweeping mm-hmm. and some of the archeology span he's citing and some of the other studies uh, about early human origins I've been aware of, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I'm a fan cause he, you know, he just decimates Pinker and the better angel, <laughs> he 
each other, which is absurd. You know? huh, huh. Um, yeah. Uh, so, all right. One more quick question, and then a more kind of heady philosophical one. The quick question is: um, is the is that neo Piagetian consensus you're referring to? Is that uh, sort of the 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 commons model of hierarchical complexity? Is that sort of now just kind of the gold standard of kind of what Piaget almost kind of would have developed if he'd lived another century or so? Or well, so the neo Piagetian consensus was a cluster of models, each of which was very different. Mm that all kind of were looking at a similar set of phenomenon. And uh, I think Kurt Fisher's work better represents what Piaget would have been doing now. Mm -hmm. Michael Commons is a mathematical psychologist and a reductive behaviorist. And so mm -hmm. the, the model of model of hierarchical complexity is a, it's like a thermometer. <laughs> it's not like a robust model of how an organism yeah. works. It's like a thermometer for measuring the temperature of the organism. Yeah. Whereas Kurt had a whole robust model about how the whole organism grows and develops in context with its environment and mm -hmm. these dynamic cycles of, and that's more what PJ was going for. Um, gotcha. uh, but Commons is ruler or thermometer, which Dawson eventually psychometrically uh, refined and uh, in, in conjunction with Fisher, you know, maps with Fisher's levels. So mm -hmm. there's deeper consensus of underlying structural phenomenon, which were identified both at the micro and macro developmental levels. That's the kind of neo-Piagetian consensus that's been best operationalized by Lectica, uh, thanks to Theo Dawson's tireless efforts, uh, mm -hmm. operational in terms of assessment. Yeah. You know, but it was best used for educational practice by Robbie Case in a, in a project called Right Start or Head Start, I forget which one it was, um, where the, he used his knowledge of mathematical development and mathematical stages of development to build an early childhood curriculum that, that to this day has some of the most profound effects on gains for marginalized students in inner city schools. And it was a very simple intervention based specifically on that way of thinking about how sequences and is this the, the Head Start program that was all uh, in the news and getting people all, or no, that was Common Core. Sorry, I'm getting them confused. Yeah, no, this was a small, it was a oh, small okay. out of Canadian program, but it was a great application um, gotcha. of the basically, and anyway, I'm not going to explain it, but mm. uh, the point is that there are humane applications of development <laughs> theory. Um, so. So my last sort of uh, big question is, um, you know, one of the things that I think is attractive, maybe seductively attractive about these developmental models is they have a kind of meta narrative um, element to them. They sort of, they do, they, they, they explain, uh, they're a narrative for explaining narratives in some ways, right? It's like, oh, this narrative, oh, I, I can, you know, that's a typology. I can classify this narrative as coming from and however you want to call it, right? And, and however people have used the developmental models to come up with the different heuristics, right? Oh, that's green or that's, you know, mythic membership or that's, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm also deeply intrigued by this and, I, and I'm in, uh, sort of self-admittedly seduced also by that meta-narrative capacity, especially at a time when we are so lacking in meta-narratives and um, some, some helpful tools to make sense of the world. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm curious, one, if you find that there's a particular expression of this in a broad heuristic sense that you feel like is generally able generally able to do that. Uh, and what I mean by that is sort of, there's the integral uh, model. Now there's this meta-modernist take on these things. I don't know if you think that the meta-modernist take brings a little bit more of that needed nuance or maybe misses other crucial factors, or maybe they're both out to lunch. Um, but broadly speaking, if you just had any reflections on sort of thinking about developmental frameworks 
uh, as meta, a meta narrative framework that, that, that people can use to make sense of the world, make sense of their lives, make sense of history, make sense of um, religion and different forms of religious engagement and sort of the big questions of ultimate concern <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say here. I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you finally got to religion and ultimate concern, which is that, frankly, a lot of what guys like you and I are doing is kind of like scraping for some kind of new religion in the context of this like deeply secular kind of crazy world. And so in that sense, the profundity of some of the truths revealed in these developmental models and that they're aspirational and that they account for teacherly dynamics and the power of learning and that they put front and center the want to improve oneself and all of these things make them kind of slot into the psychological need structure of the religion, but it's like a religion that's not a religion to, to mm. use these terms, right? right. In that sense, it's like, that's why uh, I was attracted to all of this theorizing. It was like a, a holistic way of understanding how the human could basically uh, you know, move through the world uh, and perhaps improve themselves. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, uh, the developmental tradition. And I think particularly these traditions where you don't have a built-in capacity limit, that you are autonomously learning and growing in context of your life. So there's an empowerment that comes from the constructivist developmental traditions in particular. So in that sense, I, I support them. But again, that's one third of my picture where you also have ensoulment and transcendence so where in development you are growing and you're becoming more capacitated and you're moving towards what right towards endless growth and perfection of yourself like uh-uh because then there's this domain of ensoulment where your whole personality system realizes that you're moving towards death whoa full stop that's the opposite of what all the developmental narratives tell us also about society by the way right the ontogeny phylogeny breaks down unless you take it seriously and admit that species are mortal and civilizations are mortal, uh, you're looking at a life cycle. You're not looking at an endless development. <laughs> and so the fiction that comes from just focusing on development in human development circles is like, dude, no tragedy is happening to you personally. Tragedy will happen, right? You have to get into insolment, which actually goes down and in instead of up and out, right? And then transcendence is completely different because it's not involved in either of those. <laughs> and it steps back and sees the, the total whole, right? The monism or the non-dualism of the being. Um, uh, so, so in that sense, it's like, yeah, development is valuable in that it plugs into that and can get things going. But it, the conversation as I've seen it becomes narrow one about self-improvement um, and a kind of hypertrophying of complexity. Uh, and an absence of those things that actually are uh, necessary barriers to development, which mm. are often the things that occur in insolment, mm. which infuriate people who are working on their quote unquote development, right? <laughs> that someone gets sick, right? Mm. That, that a financial problem occurs, right? Things that seem to get in the way of our optimized self for full development and, you know, prosperity and sovereignty mm. and, and it's like, no, man, you're missing actually one of the main subplots in the human story, which is mm. not the story of gaining capacity, but the story of losing capacity mm. uh, and adapting to tragedy. Mm. Uh, so in that sense, I think, yeah, there's a, 
there's a maturation that needs to occur among developmental theorists. Now, admittedly, these they weren't trying to cover everything. Kohlberg was the first person to say that. He's like, I'm just looking at moral development. It's like, I'm, you know. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think the grasping towards it and the and the wanting to live uh, to live ennobling ideas, right? I think is important not to lose. Um, but yeah, we can uh, end up living ideas that appear to if appear to be noble, um, but that are actually like rationalizations and, and things of that nature. And so I think that's what some of the critique coming from people at development is just calling these people on their shit, mm-hmm. usually these dudes on their shit, which is like, you're using this as a language to put yourself above other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and developmental language can allow you to, in very technical terms, put mm-hmm. yourself above other people, right? Now, mm-hmm. what's interesting is that in the domain of insolment, that one of the things you want to do is actually get beneath people. That's another story, which means mm-hmm. like to put yourself in service, which means to see yourself with humility, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the deepening of maturity. So there's just more to the conversation than development, basically is what I'm saying. But it's good to get into development because that is a third, yeah. <laughs> at least yeah. according to me, a third of what is occurring. You are building capacity in relation to the world and inextricably moving through these inescapable sequences of capacity. Yeah. Well, I'd love to continue the conversation at some point. So anytime you'd like to do that, we should, we should chat again because um, I'm also curious too, if you're, um, are you working on a book or do you have anything planned for, for sort of a, your presentation? I, I've, I've seen YouTube videos where you present your metapsychology and the, the different kind of three domains, but wasn't sure if you had any kind of uh, I've plans. Got the, I've got the transcripts of those um, uh, and I'm thinking about working those into a book, but uh Again, I'm often of the belief that, and it's just true factually, this is a point that Kurt made actually, when we talk about uh, capacity, he'd say some of the best thinkers like Freud, for example, uh, Margaret Mead and others uh, did their best work in their fifties and (laughs) sixties, that in some domains, this is a point about development and and ensoulment and transcendence, which is like, if you're just doing mathematics, you're basically in physics, you're going to peak out like in your twenties testosterone and caffeine and mathematics basically right <laughs> but in other fields that are like richly textured fields history psychology philosophy so i'm not in a hurry to actually get this stuff out i'm fine leaving it in the kind of oral torah as it were mm. um, but i am working on it for sure cool very cool um well thank you so much again i really appreciate you taking the time and um this has been super helpful, super enlightening. Will certainly influence um, how I'm thinking about these things as an, as I continue to formulate my thoughts about them. And uh, you know, uh, my own work definitely does situate is situated in that sort of trying to formulate that religion that's not a religion or that 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 new meta modern spirituality that you know is 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 I forget the word you use dredging up or or you know uh, trying to scrape the bottom of whatever's there that yes. you know and and uh, but at even if it is the bottom of the barrel, it's deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, Zach Stein, thank you so much. Greatly yeah, appreciate it. Yeah.